I'm Pastor Daniel. I'm a pastoral resident here at the Bray campus. And man, this has been a, a blur of a season for me. I don't know what it's been like for you, but uh, Christmas, three days later, so yesterday was my birthday, then we got New Year's, and with all of that going on, I just, I just want to get away sometimes. I don't know where you are with that, if maybe you get really excited. Um, but during this Advent series, we've been, we've been focusing on topics, on words that are kind of those Christmassy Christian words. We've talked about hope, we've talked about joy, we've talked about love, peace, and as Pastor Ray mentioned earlier, today we're talking about faith. And I, I'm thinking about those words, and I feel like they're those Christian buzzwords, you know? Like, you could throw a hashtag in front of it and have any random picture, and it would make sense, probably. And those words are often just kind of weightless with the way we use them, aren't they? I mean, we go around and, and we go, what, what does it mean to really have hope? What really is joy? We often kind of say joy is happiness. But then we try to say, well, it's more than happiness. And we go back and forth on what these words mean. And I feel like sometimes I don't really know what they mean. And we explored what they mean because of what Jesus has done in our lives. We've explored how Jesus gives us hope and gives us joy and brings love and brings peace and how, how he gives us faith. And what that call and what that response should be. Now, thinking about those words, I, like I said, they're like these buzzwords that we hear in the church most often, and maybe around Christmas time. But usually, when they're when they're said, you'll you'll hear something like, "Well, I really hope you have a nice day today," or "Man, chocolate just brings me so much joy." I love taking walks in the park, or I love ice cream. I love fill in the blank, whatever. Peace. Sometimes peace is like a greeting or a goodbye, right? As you're saying bye, you just say peace. Do we really mean it? <laughs> Do we know what we're saying when we say peace? Faith. I feel like faith is the most kind of obscure, least mentioned word outside of church. And like I said, we talk about this word, but, but what, what really does the word faith mean? How does it impact us on a day-to-day -day basis? Maybe when you've heard the word faith used in a sentence, it's been something like, well, you need to take a leap of faith. Faith is blind. Well, I don't believe that to be true. I don't think that faith should be blind. And I think that the scripture gives us good evidence that that is the case. Now, there is an element, I'll be honest, there's an element of faith that is about what we haven't yet seen. But faith is about trust. That's another word we could use and re instead of the word faith. Is trust. Hebrews 11, 
verses 1 and 2, provides a definition of faith that I want to share with you before we get to our main passage for today. Starting in verse 1, it says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about we, what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. Let me repeat that. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Faith, confidence, assurance. How does that make sense with the sentence, take a leap of faith, or faith is blind? I I don't think it does. Like I said, yes, there is an aspect where faith is believing or trusting in God or trusting in something or someone where we feel like we don't have to freak out about the unseen future. But if we can have confidence and assurance, that's what faith is. Then we better as well have something to rest that on. A foundation that actually gives us the confidence and the assurance, right? And that is actually Matthew's agenda. So today we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, as we finish up the story of baby Jesus, the Advent story. And Matthew, he's a Jewish person. He was a tax collector. And that meant that he wasn't being a good Jew. That he was actually siding with the Roman Empire. Hated by his own people. And Matthew, interestingly enough, when he starts the story in chapter 2, this part of Jesus' story, he first mentions Gentiles. And as he goes through the story here, of what happens when Jesus was a baby. He gives evidence. He gives us the evidence we need, the foundation we need to have confidence and to have assurance. For our faith to actually rest on something that's true, that's solid, that's not shaky. And I want to point that out as we read this passage and show you that Matthew was making sure that we know that Jesus really is God in the flesh. That Jesus really was the chosen Messiah. The one coming to free people from the slave of sin. Let's go ahead and jump into our passage now. And as we look at it, we're not only going to see that we have reason to believe, reason to trust, reason to have faith, but we're going to also see two examples, three actually, I'm sorry, but two, two sides. Two examples are going to be, what does it look like to have a faithful response to who Jesus is? And the other side, one character is going to show us what it looks like to have a faithless response to who Jesus is. So now that we've talked about faith is something we can have confidence and assurance, that it brings us confidence and brings us assurance. 
I want to ask us ask the question, how does the response differ? How does the response differ? The faithless and the faithful. How do those responses differ? All right, so let's go ahead and jump into our passage. So if you will, turn to Matthew 2 with me. Or open it up on your Bible app, whatever you prefer. Starting verse 1, it says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod, uh, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chiefs, priests, and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I, may, I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed on coming to the house. They saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. We're going to finish the rest of the story a little bit later, but I want to pause there for a moment. This is an interesting scene, isn't it? A baby has been born, Jesus. We don't know how old he was at this point. I know most nativity scenes show him as a little baby, but it's possible that he could have been a year, up to almost two years at this point. And we have these characters called the Magi. Again, our nativities tell us three of them were there, but we really don't know how many were there. And we also sometimes call them wise men, but the word magi is kind of, kind of an interesting word because I think we don't really completely understand it. Wise men, yes, could be one of the definitions of a magi, but also it could be magician or astrologist. So more likely what these guys were, were maybe from what scholars say, Babylonian astrologers and kind of mystics who would look at the sky and would try to predict what the future is going to be. And they would watch the sky, so they saw this star appear. And they go, what? I think we've heard about this appearance of the star before. 
And if they were Babylonian, well, Israel, for a time, was in Babylon in exile. Daniel, the prophet, would have been in a similar role at the time he lived, several hundred years before, to what these magi were at this time. These mystics, these people who were advisors to the king of Babylon and would try to give him direction by using their magical arts or whatever it was. So these guys show up, knocking on Herod's door. And Herod is considered king of the Jews. But Herod was not a Jew, he was an Idumean. But he came into power, he and his family, and because of his strength and his might and what he was doing when Rome came in and just ruled the whole world, they put him in place over the Jewish people. And they gave him more power. Now these magi are interesting because they show us, even though they're these interesting mystical men, whatever they were, they show us a faithful response. They come out of just nowhere looking for this Jesus, looking for the new king of the Jews. And they announce that to Herod, the current king of the Jews. Now, if you're thinking of them as wise men, I think we can maybe take that idea back because clearly if they knew who Herod was, that he's the king, that he was just kind of a maniacal leader, they probably would have had a little bit more wisdom to not say, we're coming to worship the new king of the Jews. Yeah, he, yeah, your throne, it's not lasting. Sorry, buddy. So, clearly, lack of wisdom. But yet, the response is faithful. And I want to look at that now. So let's zero in on verses 10 and 11. After their stop at Herod's palace, they find Jesus. They follow the star. In verse 10 it says, When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. They were overjoyed. What does joy look like to you? I mean, we just had Christmas, right? And I think that probably most of us who have kids or know of kids or who once were kids, I think that's all of us here, all of us probably can think somewhat of a picture of joy when a kid is opening up their gifts. I have a nephew named Caden. And he is just the best kid to give a gift to. Because it doesn't matter what you give him. I mean, this year he was a little less excited than usual. He's getting older, you know. But in the past several years, he would open up a gift and tear it open and look at it and go, this is just what I've always wanted. Oh my gosh, thank you, thank you. And I'm like, I 
didn't know you really wanted that, but it looked like something you might want. But every single gift, he would tear open another gift. Oh, it's what I wanted. Thank you. Oh, my gosh. And he's just the most grateful, joyful kid when receiving a gift. Do you think of that response when you think of the Magi being overjoyed to find the star? What does joy look like in your life? Is it like that? Do you jump for joy? Are you excited when you think of Jesus? When someone asks you, what gives you joy? What makes you happy? Is Jesus your first response? Does Jesus come to mind? Do you even have joy that people would notice it? Because, man, if you call yourself a Christian, the word says that that is something we should have. It's a gift. It's a byproduct of knowing Jesus. And here the Magi give us an example of joy. They are overjoyed. I don't even know how to explain overjoyed. I mean, joy sounds like it's good enough, right? But they were overjoyed. I think that that picture of my nephew, Caden, would fill in well to the story of grown men leaping for joy, giving each other high fives, just hugs, going, this is amazing. We found him. We found the Messiah. We followed the star. He's going to change the world. He's going to change lives. How do you need joy today from the Lord? Do you need more of it? Do you just need an ounce of it because you have none? I can tell you, he wants to give that to you. He wants you to experience that. But we don't get just joy. That's not the only thing we see that is a faithful response. That's the heart, but the emotion as well in verse 11 is that on coming to the house, they, they saw the child with his mother Mary. They bowed down and worshiped him. They worshipped him. See, their, their emotion was joy. Their heart, though, was filled with worship. Their heart was filled with worship. And, you know, what's, what's interesting is, is we've got to ask ourselves, was their intent on finding Jesus to worship him? And I'd say yes, because if we look back, when they get to Herod's, in verse 8, it says, Herod sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. So clearly they had told Herod, we want to find this baby because we want to go and worship him. We want to honor him. We want to bring him gifts. They had shared their intent that it was to worship him. And then they travel a great distance. You know, I think that oftentimes we come to church and we say, this is the place to worship. 
And we, we in America are blessed because we don't have to hide our worship. We don't have to fear the government. We can worship freely. These men, whether they were wise or not, they had no reason to believe that walking in to Jerusalem and talking to Herod, the current king of the Jews, and saying, we want to worship the new king of the Jews, that they wouldn't be executed. That they wouldn't feel repercussion. And thinking about the length of their journey and how far they had to go to get there in person to worship him. How much are we motivated to worship Jesus? Do we have to drag ourselves to worship him? I think a a helpful analogy could be uh, an analogy from the Mission Impossible movies. I, I love those movies. I don't know how Tom Cruise is still doing what he's doing. That guy is like, forever young, who knows what he's drinking. (laughs) But anyway, Ethan Hunt is the character that Tom Cruise plays in the Mission Impossible movies. And movie after movie, Ethan Hunt is encounters impossible scenarios. It's called Mission Impossible for a reason, because really, every movie is impossible, and he's doing the impossible, and there's no man that could actually do these things. But The point of this analogy is that he never gives up. That the lengths that he goes to save the world and to complete the mission are just astronomical. And he always lays his life on the ground for the world. To to accomplish the mission. The magi here in this story, their mission was to show up and worship Jesus. That was their sole mission here, was to give him honor. Is that the life mission that you feel that you have? I know personally that I don't wake up every day going, Lord, I'm going to worship you today with all that I got. I just turned 31, and I'm already feeling the sore back. I get out of bed, and I go, oh, ow, I I slept too long. Or I slept, I didn't sleep enough. Regardless of what it is, either way, it's bad. (laughs) Where is your heart on a daily basis? Is it for the Lord Is it to worship him? Is it your mission daily to get up and give him praise and give him glory? If it's not, then, man, maybe you're not spending enough time with him. So, another analogy if you don't identify with the Mission Impossible one, is, is a sports analogy for those who are sports fans. And I think of my dad when I, I think of a sports fan because 
he went to Clemson. He's here, so I get to embarrass him a little bit. And sorry, Siri's talking to me. I don't know why. So Clemson, anyway. Okay, my dad went to Clemson a number of years ago. If you've been following college football at all, you'll know that Clemson won last year, that last year they had an undefeated season. This year they also have had an undefeated season. And last night they just won by like inches. I mean, it was a tough battle for them, but they pulled it out and they pulled through and they're heading, you know, heading to the finals. So my point is that when I heard him talking about the game, I just hear him go in the other room, they won! Yes, they won! <laughs> and I'm like, uh, all right, they won. Clubs won, woohoo! <laughs> and I know a number of people who are sports fans that are like that, that just cannot contain themselves and would give anything to be at a game. Another person I can think of is a manager I used to work with when I worked at Trader Joe's. His name is Paul, and he's a huge Notre Dame fan. And if, the, if Notre Dame was doing well, it was a good day. If Notre Dame wasn't doing well, he might as well have not showed up to work because he was pointless being there because that's all he could do is be in misery. And, and that's like what I think of when I think of worship oftentimes. And it's sad because that we think of fans as being worshipful, but in reality, I mean, people go to sports games to get excited, to cheer on their team, to be like, we're the champions! And then we come to church, and we don't really have the same response to our Lord and Savior. We don't say, Jesus is the champion, and because of that, I am a champion too. See, the thing about my dad with Clemson and my friend Paul with Notre Dame is that you're doing well, it just leaks out of them. You know, they wear their hat. We got my dad a, a Clemson jacket, and he's been wearing it nonstop. Not right now, but, you know, <laughs> every other time outside of church. He's wearing that. And people who are excited about something just leak it out of them. And that's what our worship Jesus should be like. Guys, if you know Jesus, then worship should just leak out of you. When you're at work, I know it's challenging. I know that you might be facing hardship at work and you might be ostracized. You might even get fired if you were to mention Jesus to someone. This is our Savior. This is our Savior. Where is our heart? Is it, you know, lining up all of the reasons why we shouldn't be in a constant state of worship? Why we shouldn't be excited? Or is it just so full? of the joy that the Lord brings us, that our response is worship. Again, I don't know where you're at with that, but my prayer for you is that if you're not experiencing that kind of joy and that just 
overflow of worship, that you would get that. That the Lord would bring that to you. The third thing we learn from the Magi in having a faithful response is giving, is sacrifice. To finish verse 11, it says, Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. Those gifts were valuable gifts. Gifts worthy of a king. And today, I want to ask you, do you think about when you give to Jesus that he is your king? That he is worthy of the most valuable gift? And maybe you don't have gold and frankincense and myrrh. Maybe you don't have a lot of money. Maybe you don't have a lot of time. But are you thinking about the gifts that you're bringing to him? the sacrifice that you're laying down, do you feel motivated to give back to him? Father Damien was a man who gave it all. Father Damien was a priest and he served on the Hawaiian Islands. And during the time he was there, there was an outbreak of leprosy. And the response to the epidemic was to gather the people together who had leprosy and to send them to the island of Molokai. On seeing this, Father Damien could not help himself. His love and his compassion for people, his love for the Lord, led him to go to the island Molokai. He was healthy at the time when he went. And he wrote a number of letters. And one of the things that he said as he was going was, I make myself a leper with the lepers to gain all to Jesus Christ. Father Damien knew that most likely he would contract leprosy, but yet he still went. Guys, we, we maybe don't have gold and frankincense and, frankincense and myrrh to give Jesus. Maybe we don't feel like we have a lot to give him. Maybe you're thinking that, man, I, I just, I don't have the time. I don't have, like I said, I don't have a ton of money. But Jesus isn't asking for certain things. He's asking for all of you. So if, if your heart is holding on to money, maybe you say, how do I give that over to him so that he can tell me what to do with my money? If you are holding on to your career and you can't let go of it, it's your dream job. And maybe you've heard the Lord telling you that you need to be doing something else or that you give too much to work, that you spend too much time there and you're sacrificing your time with him, you're sacrificing time with family for your work. 
I don't care if it's your dream job, but maybe you have to say, Jesus, I'm going to give this to you so that you can tell me what to do with my job, whether I should stay or whether I should leave. If it is your time, you maybe you're, you're a parent and you're like, my kids are just, they're in soccer, they're in baseball, they're in basketball, they're in dance, and the list just keeps on going, right? They go to after-school study programs, SATs are coming up, I mean, they got to go to those classes, and I got to drive them everywhere. Well, really, guys, your time can be given to Jesus as well. We don't need to be doing as much as we're doing. I know that I can spend way less time looking at my phone. And maybe you could too. It gives you weekly updates now. It goes, you're down 17%. I'm like, good, I'm trying to get down a lot more than that. Because I want to spend more time with him. I want to give him more. And just so much gets in the way. I know. I'm there too. I don't know what's getting in your way. Maybe it's one of the things I mentioned. Maybe it's something completely different. But whatever is getting in the way, it's not worth more than time spent with Jesus. It's not worth sacrificing him in a relationship with him. Instead, it is far more worth sacrificing all of those things for him. Laying them down as gifts. Man, he he is faithful to respond with generosity and with love. He's faithful to cut the things out that need to be cut out of your life. And he's faithful to let you hold on to the things that that he feels like are going to build you up are going to be things that are going to help you grow. Guys, these are, these are faithful responses. Joy, worship, sacrifice. But there is another response, and that response is from Herod. And I want to look at that. And we're going to look at Again, at verse 3. Because the response of Herod is faithless. And the response of Herod is one that is troubled. It says in verse 3, When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed or troubled, some of your versions might say, and all Jerusalem with him. I mean, come on, the the king is troubled. And like I said, Herod was a neurotic and murderous man. Herod was the type of man that would let people speak into his life and cause fear that would then lead him to execute his first and most beloved wife and her children and her mother. Herod was a man that killed his firstborn son because He wanted the power. This man was troubled. Like I said, if the wise men knew who he was, I I would hope they would have made a different 
call on whether to tell them that they're looking for Jesus. We see that Herod is troubled. His emotion is troubled. He cannot let this rest. And that ripples out and affects the nation. So much so that angels had to show up and tell Joseph and Mary, you got to get out of here because Herod is coming for Jesus. Herod wants to kill Jesus. Flee. Go. They run to Egypt, but that was in God's plan. Scripture says that it was because God prophesied that he would call his son out of Egypt. So God makes a way, even though Herod was troubled. But Herod, he also has mixed motives. In verses 8 and 12, we're going to see that. In verse 8, it says, He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. See, on one side, he's going, I'm going to worship him too. And maybe for a second, he thought, I might actually worship this king. But in reality, he was holding on to his power, holding on to his throne and afraid. So he says, I'm going to worship him. But in reality, that was not his intent. In reality, he was looking to do the complete opposite, to destroy Jesus. In verse 12, it says, And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they, the Magi, returned to their country by another route. The angel comes and tells them, Herod's intent is not to worship Jesus, but to destroy him. Go. Protect him. Get out of here. This is a faithless response. Is mixed motives. And the last thing we're going to see from his faithless response is that he was self-seeking. In verse 16, it says, When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Guys, this is is a heartbreaking story part of the story because not only are we seeing this terrible response, this faithless response, that Herod's motto was, I got to protect my throne. So much so that he would kill children. But the thing is, is that God had everything in control. And even though Herod did a terrible thing, God uses this evil as evidence, pointing back to a prophecy that there would be weeping, that this town would cry out on the loss of their children. God gives us the evidence there. Faith, to have a faithful response. To not be like Herod and have the faithless response. 
when thinking of someone who is a contemporary figure similar to Herod, the person that first came to mind was Kim Jong-un. Someone who is neurotic and fearful and looking to protect his, his power so much that he's willing to say, I'm going to send you a Christmas gift. And we all know what that means. A missile. It didn't come, and who knows what's going to happen, right? The world is, is still filled with evil leadership, filled with people that respond faithlessly, that respond with trouble, mixed motives, and respond to look to protect their throne. And I know not all of us are going to, we're not <laughs> clearly like Herod. But I think the reality we can connect with is that oftentimes unwilling to get off the throne in our own lives. Oftentimes, in, in Christians, I'm speaking to you as well, you're, you're unwilling to get off the throne and give God everything. For those of us who don't believe, maybe we're, we're hesitant and we're still unwilling to get off the throne of our lives, but that is what we're being called to do. Because guys, when, when Jesus comes, we have to respond. The evidence here demands a verdict. We have to do something. And oftentimes we think we can get away with not having a response. There are those of us who say, we're all in. I've seen so much that I cannot deny who God is and that he exists and the love he has for me. And then there are those of us who are saying, I haven't, I haven't seen enough. Guys, the evidence is there. Jesus has come. And what are you going to do with the throne of your life? Are you still sitting on it? Are you still holding on to it at all? Annie Dillard, a Pulitzer Prize writer, wrote that it could be that our faithlessness is a cowering cowardice born of our very smallness, a massive failure of imagination. If we were to judge nature by common sense or likelihood, we wouldn't believe the world existed. What she's saying there is that oftentimes we feel like we, we have so much common sense that we don't believe, that we're unwilling to get off the throne, but really if we're using the same common sense to saying God doesn't exist and that Jesus didn't come, that we would have to also deny that the world exists. Scripture says that the mountains are evidence that God exists. Historians say the world would not be the way it is if Jesus didn't really come. We have two options here for a response. One of faithfulness and one of faithlessness. And I have to ask you, where are you? Where are you today? If you're a Christian and you're saying... Maybe I want more faith. I want more joy. I want to be more filled with worship. I want to express more sacrifice and give the Lord more. 
Well, I would say that you probably need to spend more time with Jesus. Spend more time with him. And if today you're still questioning who he is, I can assure you that he is a savior who loves and he's willing to just give you joy and fill your heart with worship and to help you let go of those things that he's asking you to give over to him. So you need to give up your throne to save your soul. Giving up your throne is what saves your soul. Because listen, your throne, it's not gonna last. And your kingdom and your riches are not gonna last. But there is a kingdom that is eternal. And that's the one that Jesus has built. And the throne, giving him the throne of your life means that you get to be a part of his kingdom. And I want to end with a quote, another quote from Father Damien. Because he understood this. He understood the faithful response. He understood the sacrifice and the obedience that it took to lay down his life. But he also experienced that joy in worship. So Father Damien wrote, the sacrifice is great for a heart which tenderly loves his parents, family, religious brothers, and the land where he was born. But the voice which invites us, which has called us to make the offering of everything we have, is the voice of God himself. It is our divine Savior who says to us, at his first, to his first apostles, go, teach all nations instructing them to observe all my commandments. Guys, we, we have enough confidence insurance to have faith, to respond with faith. And Father Damien did contract leprosy. And he died when he was 49. But for him, the joy of serving the Lord that worship, that sacrifice was worth it. Because he knew that even if his life here was short and ended terribly, that he had eternity to look for. That he had a kingdom that he didn't have to build. That he was already a part of. Today God wants you to experience that kingdom more to live in that joy, to be filled with worship, to sacrifice. Guys, he's faithful. And he's asking you to be faithful as well.